Hello, I'm Andy McLenahan and welcome to episode 66 of Let's Talk Social Work. The subject we'll be looking at today isn't one we've explored previously on the podcast. The discussion is going to focus on self-neglect, what it is, the ways in which it affects people and how social workers can respond. Joining me to help explore the topic of self-neglect are Lizzie Ferber, Principal Social Worker with Responsibility for Social Justice, Diversity and Strategy at DCC Interactive Limited, and Independent Social Worker Lisa Barrett. Lisa runs a consultancy called Clutter Free Living and is a trainer with and former board member of the Association of Professional Declutterers and Organisers. Lisa and Lizzie, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. It's great to have you both on the podcast for the first time. Lizzie, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm great. Good to be here. Thanks very much, Andy. Oh, you're very welcome. Lizzie, and where are you today? So I'm joining you from a small flat in East London, sunny London borough of Hackney. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. And Lisa, how about you? How are you doing? Are you well? Hi, yes, good. Thank you for having me, yeah. Wonderful. And where about you? Uh, In Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire. Okay, and I'm as always in Belfast. We used to always do this. We, I always used to ask guests where they were because we are, as always, recording via Zoom and I haven't done it for a while. Mm-hmm. So it's lovely to actually find find out where you are. So today, yeah, we're going to be talking about self-neglect. And Lizzie, listeners, they may have varying understandings of what self-neglect is. And I'll be honest, before I began looking into this subject, I had very little understanding myself. So could you start us off by explaining what self-neglect is and maybe some of the different ways that it can manifest? Yeah, sure. So self-neglect, essentially, it's an umbrella term. So it's a it's a broad term describing a really wide range of different behaviours, different presentations. Um, broadly speaking, it covers neglect to care for personal hygiene or personal care, neglect of your health, physical health or mental health, environment, including hoarding. Um, usually comes to the attention of social workers or statutory services when there's a risk identified to that person or to other people. So, for example, somebody might be neglecting their physical health health care by refusing care for leg ulcers, for example, despite the fact that there's now a real risk that they may need an amputation or somebody might be neglecting their physical environment to the extent that there's infestations or leaks from, you know, from water pipes, etc., that are now causing damage or problems for neighbours. But basically, it's as varied as humans are. Okay, and, and you're mentioning the social work involvement comes in when it's to do with the risk associated with that self-neglect? Yeah, generally speaking, that's when... Um, so I come from a perspective of working, dealing with safeguarding. Generally, if a safeguarding concern is raised, it's where risk has been identified by other people generally, not the person themselves. And you mentioned when you were given that just overview there, Lizzie, you mentioned the term hoarding. And I know that often discussions regarding self-neglect tend to focus on hoarding behaviours. And that is something we are going to cover. We're going to cover it in detail later. But I think it's really important that listeners aren't given the impression that hoarding is the sole way in which self-neglect can manifest. So thanks for explaining the various ways that it can. But you, I know that your background, you have experience working with people um, who are homeless and people with addiction. Um, Tell us how self-neglect can manifest in those sorts of uh, in those sorts of scenarios. Yeah, so my background is in work with people experiencing multiple exclusion homelessness. 
So that term um, covers the overlap and intersection between homelessness, including rough sleeping, and other areas of social exclusion. So things like institutionalisation, either in local authority care as a child or in psychiatric wards or um, in prison. Um, So the overlap between that and other areas of social exclusion, such as drug and alcohol use, what's called street activities like begging, etc. So that's that's my background is supporting adults who are experiencing that overlap and intersection of different levels of exclusion. And within the people that I've worked with, self-neglect is a really common issue, but it's really often not recognised. Um, and I think, well, there's a wide range of different reasons for that, but I think there's potentially perceptions about oh, someone who's using drugs will look or behave in this way or someone who is sleeping on the street will look or behave in this way. Um, Whereas actually it's a lot more complicated than that. So just, just if I understand, it's being dismissed basically as an aspect of addiction or homelessness rather than something which is additional to the fact that a person is homeless or misusing substances, yeah? Yeah, correct. Like, um, so, for example, a lot of people, and increasingly a lot of people due to cost of living crisis, impact of COVID, etc., may unfortunately find themselves in the position of being homeless. But a lot of people are able to sort of, with the support of street outreach workers, resolve that relatively quickly, not quickly enough, but relatively quickly. Whereas for somebody who is rough sleeping and either refusing assistance or unable to engage in the assistance that's offered, that's concerning. Um, And that's not standard for somebody who is sleeping on the street. The majority of people would like to have accommodation. Um, So it's it's also, it's a really dangerous form of self-neglect in part because it's not recognised. There's this sort of notion of lifestyle choice where it's you know someone's using drugs or alcohol or if someone's rough sleeping oh this is a lifestyle choice nothing we can do um whereas actually we know from research and from you know data around average age at death of people who are rough sleeping that the impact of long-term rough sleeping and neglect and inability to access support for physical and mental health it's life limiting um and potentially deadly in extreme weather. And 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 Lizzie, if I could just push you for some specifics in relation to, you'd mm. mentioned earlier at the start, you know, somebody who has ulcerations on their legs and maybe at mm. risk of amputation, uh, not engaging with services to address that. That's a clear example of somebody who is self-neglecting. Are there any other examples that you would come across that would help listeners just understand some specifics? Yeah, so quite common when I've worked in mental health teams that are specifically focused on working with people experiencing multiple exclusion homelessness and a common reason for referral to me would be that somebody is appearing neglected in their physical appearance. Um, They're not accessing local day centres when street outreach workers are approaching them. They're shouting at them to go away. 
maybe the weather is getting colder, winter's coming and they're just saying, go away. It might be that they've got a history of requiring admission to hospital with um, deep vein thrombosis or similar, you know, think a condition that can potentially be life-threatening, but, um, and it's getting to the point where we're getting to winter. So the risk to life is, is upping and the person is still not speaking to outreach workers or not accepting offers that are put their way to come indoors. And how common is self-neglect? You know, I'm sorry, I know that's a pretty wide question, but Lisa, Lizzie, in terms of, you know, social work, Lizzie, you've mentioned working in mental health teams, you've talked about working with people who have addiction, people who are homeless and rough sleeping. You know, will social workers be encountering self-neglect specifically in those areas or will social workers that are working with older people, for example, or children's and family social workers, will they also be encountering um, instances of self-neglect? Yeah, I think across all sectors. And I think that just reiterates what Lizzie's already said, that the self-neglect is almost, it's it's linked, but it's a slightly separate issue to the other experiences that a person is going through. So not everyone who hoards will self-neglect. And you might be um, working, yeah, with a family with children where the, the parents are also neglecting themselves as well as the home and the family situation. So it's not in every every case, but it's it, it needs its own kind of focus, really. Lisa, I want to come back to something. We are going to talk about hoarding. I said in detail, and we're going to talk about it later, but you mm. mentioned not everyone who hoards is necessarily self-neglecting. I'm going to, I'm mm. going to take a note of that because I do want to come back to that. Um, but before we get into that, I want to talk about causes of self-neglect. You know, would it, mm. be, would it be right to say that often the causes of self-neglect are rooted in trauma? So... There's been quite a lot of research from a sort of public health perspective done into the causes of self-neglect and visible aspects of self-neglect. So, for example, <laughs> long-term rough sleeping. Um, I know that Public Health England did a review of adults with complex needs in 2018 and found that a common thread was experiences of severe and complex trauma in early life. Um and I think that I think it's it's really complex because I don't want to simplify things and say, yes, if you've had complex trauma in early life, then you will self-neglect. But I think, you know, part of an approach to working with self-neglect is that trauma-informed approach holding in mind that that is likely to be part of someone's experiences and history. Um, it certainly can lead to a distrust of authorities and quite understandably so. Um, if people, I remember being told by somebody that I worked with that I think I was about her 10th or 11th social worker. Um, and, you know, she had the first one when she was a small child um, and had been known to services for a very long time, had had some very challenging life experiences and social workers hadn't helped her in her experience, how she'd experienced it. Social workers hadn't helped her at any point. And she explained this to me and she said, yes, yeah, so that's why I told you to F off when you introduced yourself to me. And um, she didn't say F, but, um, but you know, I, yes. you completely... We're all grown up, so you can use the full term if you want, Lizzie. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to put the little E for explicit content beside the, when it gets published. So that's totally fine. Um, but, but I think it's sort of unpicking 
the meaning behind the behaviour. I think often in services we're kind of set up to rush out and respond to a sort of a crisis situation, provide a brief term intervention and then all rush back out again. Whereas actually it's about considering what's the meaning behind this behaviour and trauma is likely to be a thread. Mental distress may well be a thread. We know that, um, you know, for example, depression can lead to lack of motivation, lack of self-worth. Yeah, I was going to um, ask it even, yeah, so brain injury, dementia, mental disorders, mm. even physical illness at where medication, yeah, can, yeah. can have a, yeah. an impact on somebody. Yeah, what I'd say is that things that impact on people's executive functioning is where it's worth bearing in mind, you know, if somebody is self-neglecting, it's worth bearing in mind, is there something that is impacting their executive functions, their ability to make plans, see through plans, sequence tasks, um, you know, these kind of these kind of things, flexible thinking, being able to use information. And as you say, brain injury, dementia, negative symptoms of schizophrenia, some forms of neurodiversity, etc., can lead to difficulties with executive functions. Is it helpful if we move it on a little bit? Is it helpful to consider self-neglect in terms of intentional or active self-neglect compared to passive or non-intentional self-neglect? You know, so whether somebody is actually choosing to neglect their their, their self, um, or it's something that they essentially don't have control over. So Lisa might disagree with me. So Lisa, please do like come in and tell and tell me if, if I'm off the mark in your view. But in my opinion, I don't think it's helpful to try and separate. I think it's reductive. Lisa is something that, yeah. that's a that's a complex issue. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think you can choose. No. I think what you've just explained really well is that loads of factors contribute to somebody yeah. neglecting their, their their own care and it's not ever a choice really. Um I know what you mean, Andy, that maybe some people literally cannot wash themselves or make a meal or undo the packets of medication. Um so that would be unintentional but but i, I would I suppose that's that not neglect though of, that's just to do with an inability to to care for well oneself. and it's almost neglect from others yeah yeah yeah, that yeah, person yeah, needs yeah help yes um so yeah i wouldn't say it's ever a choice i think it's a, always a combination of factors often really low self-esteem and low self-worth mm. uh, you know i don't deserve to be clean and eat well and have a nice home is often you know when we yeah. do that digging down what comes out so um yeah, never that lifestyle choice. I think that's applied to to hoarding quite often. Yeah, that's they've chose. They've got capacity. They've chosen. It's making an um, unwise. They're making an unwise decision where there's been mm. no exploration whatsoever. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. No. My concern is that I think it's helpful for people to think about, given that there's this, as Lisa was saying, there's this sort of a kind of blanket assumption that self neglect, hoarding, um drug and alcohol use, street homelessness, all of these things are a lifestyle choice and therefore we must allow people to crack on with it, whatever the consequences. Um, so I think it's helpful that it's entered the arena of thought that people might not intentionally be doing these things. But my can concern... I, can I just jump in there? Lizzie? The, yeah. the, that language of lifestyle choice, is that language prevalent within the profession? Yes. It is. Sadly. Right. 
Okay. Yeah. Now, yes, because listeners will know that I I make the podcast. I work in policy and lobbying for Basel, but I'm not a social worker, so I'm 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 keen to be put right in this. That does surprise me. That's the sort of language that I would expect to hear in maybe among the general public, where there's less understanding of this issue. That it's something that somebody chooses to rough sleep, or somebody chooses to use um, substances, you know, in a in a in an abusive way, but. I mean, all I'm saying is from what I've learned from listening to others, surely those are very often behaviours that are driven by traumatic um, experiences as a child or something like that, you know, when it's, yeah. it's informing um, behaviours as an adult. It just, it does, it startles me that that is your experience, that you're you're hearing that from, from within the profession. Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think I can understand sometimes where it comes from because you will talk to people who are really articulate and really assertive at saying I've weighed up the risks this is how I want to do it I don't want you to help I know what the consequences will be and at that point I think a lot of professionals do just get a bit stuck and think well you know they're they're making this choice and there's nothing I can do about it um and I think that's where it comes from um but yeah I mean every every kind of training course I run or uh, other professionals and meetings I go to, I'm always like, it's not a lifestyle choice. You have to keep saying it. Yeah. So do you feel, do you feel that the the, the profession's response is changing? You know, if we look at what the way things might've been 10, 20 years previously, are we moving slowly? Is that what you're saying, Lisa? Yeah, I think, I think we're getting there. Yeah. And I think, um, so Michael Preston shoot has done a lot of, work around um self-neglect as a safeguarding issue and he um published he he and colleagues often review safeguarding adults reviews and since self-neglect became within the category of safeguarding adults which is when the care act came in um self-neglect has been the most prevalent category of safeguarding adults reviews every single year and it can feel a little bit frustrating um, when this keeps coming up and I think that I'm kind of quite keen not to sort of not to make individual workers who are going out and trying to support adults feel that you know it's kind of a personal sort of you know blame issue because I think fundamentally we are living in a broader culture of individualism and about individual responsibility. And I think that, you know, it's through that framework that personal issues are viewed. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that services aren't set up to, to work with people who are self-neglecting in the way that we know actually supports people. It's very much about brief interventions Whereas we know what needs to happen is that longer term relational work, you know, trust building, relationship building. Um, so I think it's kind of a very broad issue here. Yeah, I think sometimes when there are like short term issues and challenges for people, the brief interventions are really helpful. You know, they don't want people knocking on their door for the next 10 years. They want to, you know, have the support they need and move on. But actually, when self-neglect's involved, it's because it's so complex, all of the associated issues, is that it's never going to be a brief intervention. And I know not everyone will agree with me on this, but but a lot of these issues are lifelong. Yeah. You know, the, these people will need support forever. And I don't think that should be viewed as a really negative or that they've failed as a human because they will always need help. Yeah. You know, exactly some people right. just will. 
Exactly right. And, you know, I'm, I'm often loath to compare sort of different things to physical disability, for example, but there are certain things that people live with and have support throughout their lives. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it's basically, there's never any quick fixes, are there? And unfortunately, you know, in the kind of cash-strapped world that we have to work in, quick fixes are what are looked for and that won't happen. Mm. And are often more damaging, actually. Exactly. Lisa, Lizzie, I mentioned earlier that when people think of self-neglect, many think of hoarding. And as I understand, hoarding used to be considered a symptom of obsessive compulsive disorder, but now there's a separate clinical definition of hoarding disorder. Now, Lisa, can you tell me, at what stage does untidiness or or a reluctance to, to get rid of things that others would regard as having no purpose or value, at what point does that become a hoarding disorder? Okay, so um, yeah, hoarding disorder is now um, listed in the DSM um, and the ICD as uh, its own clinical definition. Lisa, sorry, DSM and ICD. What do those um, What do those abbreviations mean? The Diagnostic Statistical Manual and the International Classification of Diseases. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so. Uh, What changes um, a full home into a hoarding disorder really um, are factors like the the level of distress that someone feels just even thinking about getting rid of anything or letting anything go. Um, And also the the level um, of items in the home. We use something called the clutter image rating quite often to look at how much stuff someone's got, how full their home is. so that's a kind of scoring between one and nine. And if you're looking at sort of five and above on that scoring, um, you can see that someone's home is is almost unusable. So not being able to use rooms for their intended purpose um, really is a big factor there. So what would you be seeing when you go into someone's home who has a person who has who is self-neglecting and, and hoarding and, you know, to an extent where it really is having a significant impact in their life and there is risks associated with it. You know, can you kind of paint us a a picture of what that might look like walking through the front door? Yeah, well, it's kind of on a scale. So um, sometimes I meet people who aren't self-neglecting at all, you know, literally have their nails done every week, you know, volunteer uh, uh, in the community, really sociable. But the home is just chock-a-block so it might be that you can only just squeeze in the front door um, and there's nowhere for anyone else to sit they might just have a little space to sit on the sofa Um, uh, they may not be able to sort of prepare a meal a fresh meal like no worktop space they might be sleeping in their chair coming back though coming back to the point that we mentioned earlier and I said I was going to bring that back to you know you said not everyone who hoards is actually self-neglecting but if somebody is living in a home where the home they basically are kind of totally constrained and they can't use their home they can't prepare a meal the bathroom's stacked with you know stuff does that not mean they are self-neglecting am I misunderstanding well yeah no certain elements so um so for instance you you might have somebody who's in that really full home but their self-presentation they really take care of themselves but not their home so yes we would look at that as as an element of self-neglect but it's not um global across every aspect of their life um and equally you might have somebody who isn't looking after themselves in in a medical like they're not taking their medication for instance and becoming physically unwell but their home is pristine so self-neglect isn't it there 
people don't always neglect all areas of their life. I, I totally get it. I'm trying to say. Yeah. Understand, understand. I was just actually yeah. back in July, I read an article in The Guardian that explained that last year the London Fire Brigade int- attended it was 1,036 hoarding-related fires in the city, and that led to 186 injuries and 10 deaths. So I think that's quite helpful, you know, kind of statistics just to kind of highlight just how risky it can be to have a home mm-hmm. which has, you know, a huge amount of, for want of a better word, stuff in it that doesn't need to be there. You know, in terms of, you know, limiting someone's ability, you said, to cook or to clean or to, to, to use the bathroom, in terms of the fire risk, that's got to be a big consideration, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, People who I work with will often argue that they're not at an increased risk of having a fire. Um, But what the risk is often is if there was a fire, that it would spread more quickly, the the temperature would reach its highest point more quickly, it wouldn't be safe to get out very easily. And it's also not very safe for the fire brigade to come in. Um, So for instance, if there was a fire at night, they would expect a person to be upstairs in a bedroom. If somebody hoards and they can't sleep in their bedroom, it you know they they they're looking around the home trying to find somebody to help them in not the usual place it's it's factors like that and f- falling items um so yeah the the fire would be worse is sort of how they've the fire brigade have explained it to me and to my clients thanks lisa now just so i fully understand does a full home a, a home which has an unusual amount of clutter does that necessarily mean that the occupants or an occupant has hoarding disorder or is it too simple to suggest that that is the case? Yeah, quite often, actually, there are other reasons why people have really full homes. Um, often they're things that we've discussed already. Executive functioning um, is a big factor. So um, a lot of people I work with actually don't have hoarding disorder diagnosed at all. Um, it will be things like ADHD, uh, autism, um, acquired brain injuries. It might be physical reasons uh, that the person can't keep on top of just daily life. Um We've mentioned a bit about trauma. A lot of my clients have experienced really, really complex, repeated um, traumas, you know, throughout their childhood or later in life. Um, Bereavement is a huge, huge factor. So there's loads of reasons why a person may keep lots of things um, that isn't hoarding disorder. And so when I work with those people, they're actually quite willing to let go. They're, They're you know, they're more than happy to say, yes, please, like all that stuff can go. I don't want those books. I, you know, none of those clothes fit. And it, they just need um, what we call it body doubling sometimes, somebody with them to do it together and then they can make decisions and they can let it go. Whereas with hoarding disorder, it's a very different approach and a very different um, timescale <laughs> to working. So in terms of factors, um, back to somebody who does have hoarding disorder, diagnosably mm. has hoarding disorder. Um, when I was doing some reading in preparation, I, I was coming across terms like acquisition, saving, disorganisation in terms yeah. of why people um, will hoard. Um, would it be helpful to go through those in terms of, you know, exploring different reasons? You know, what, what would it mean by acquisition? Is somebody trying to um, collect stuff because they may have had a lack of material, um, you know, possessions in the past? Um, Yeah, that's always an interesting one that comes up, actually, that people will often say that that's a reason why they buy a lot now, um, because they didn't have much when they were younger. But I suppose it's it's still 
an individual's coping mechanism because not everyone who didn't have much now hoards. You know, that's not how everyone copes with a lack um, in their life by then having excess. It's one way that somebody may cope. Um, So for some people, they may feel that's the reason. But again, often when you do a bit more digging, (laughs) that's not really the main reason. There's a lot of other things. Okay, thank you, Lisa. Now, if a local authority identifies a home, if a social worker identifies a home where there is um, a huge amount of stuff that poses a risk, you know, for, for fire, for example, if the local authority intervenes to forcibly clear the person's home, you know, I imagine that sort of action could be incredibly stressful, you know, cause a huge amount of anxiety. You know, can we explore the, the impacts of that sort of blitz or deep cleaning and, 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 and how that would impact the, the individual involved? Yeah, and it's interesting to use that word blitz because that's what we all used to say, even, uh, you know, years 20 years ago, um, it was a blitz clean. And, yeah. you know, the definition of a blitz is like repeated attacks on a person's home. <laughs> like, and that's how it feels to the person, um, that they're it's intrusive. Um, one lady, a um, brilliant lady, came and did a, a talk at a hoarding event. She said it felt like rape. It felt like someone had come in and taken all of her privacy all of her control everything away from her that she felt that um was hers and that she could manage she did it was taken from her and like ripped out of her hands almost and that was a like very powerful statement I think for the professionals there listening to her yes um it's it causes more harm than good it's a really short-term fix you know actually if you need to get somebody out of hospital um, and they want to go home, they will sometimes agree to a big clear out so they can get home. But it's not, it doesn't solve any of the issues. And if if they have the means, they'll refill it quicker than it was before. So um, it's always really needs to be an absolute last resort. Could that set someone back, Lisa, you know, in terms of could that make them more entrenched, Stephen, in their behaviour? Yeah, and much more likely to refuse services in the future. You know, as Lizzie was talking about earlier, if they've had that trauma where someone's come in and said they're here to help and then caused a lot of upset, the next time someone comes and says they're here to help, they're not going to open the door. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes by the time I'm referred uh, uh, somebody to work with, it's a really long, slow process to build that trust. Yeah. I've had an experience working with people who've had, and we used to call it a blitz clean, exactly as you say. Yeah. And um, I had a gentleman read me the definition of blitz. And and I was trying to explain that this wasn't on the agenda for, for my, um, you know, attempts to support him. But exactly as you say, it then makes someone far less likely to, you know, open the door to the local mm-hmm. authority in the future. So what mm-hmm. does a good person-centred, therapeutic, trauma-informed approach look like, Lisa? How should social workers be responding? <laughs> Yeah, the ideal scenario. Um, yeah, a team approach is is key, really, because if somebody is hoarding and possibly self-neglect is involved as well, is that one one role, you know, that's not down to the housing officer, it's not down to the social worker to solve all of those issues. It's about all the professionals bringing those skills in and working together um, and but time. <laughs> so I think compassion is the key all the way. Um And that can be tricky because sometimes a professional will see someone's home and just think like, oh, my 
goodness, how can you live like this? This is dangerous. This They panic and think, oh my goodness, I'm going to get in trouble because this person is so high risk. I don't know what to do. Um, they need to get this sorted quickly. So it's it's having good supervision and good, um, you know, colleague kind of support and uh, multi um, agency multidisciplinary support really because there will be probably a housing issue there will be a need for a social worker there'll be a need for an occupational therapist maybe um, like a social prescriber or a community agent because it needs to be holistic um, and when everyone works together and builds those relationships with the person you can start to see some progress but the focus has to be the person not the stuff and working at a pace that that is accessible for the person, yeah. Yeah, very slow. My most recent, um, I just went and did a a, a, ref, a referral joint visit with a social worker, and we managed to get the person to agree for me to pop round for a chat. <laughs> that's the, that's our first visit. That was, you know, and he was really happy with that. But the thought of like he had in his head full to empty. Yes, that's, he couldn't. He can't imagine the slow journey in between. Yes. So that's what's going to take the time. So, and it can be a, a case of managing risk in the meantime. Yeah, and there is, you know, there's no heating or hot water. Yeah, that's a big risk for an older person. Yes, so Social Care Institute for Excellence, say it was on their website, and they highlight it's rare that a total transformation will take place, and positive change should be seen as a long-term incremental process. So that would seem to kind of tie in with what you've been saying, Lisa. But with that in mind, you know, given the importance of working with the person who is hoarding at the pace that works for them and is manageable for them, do you ever encounter frustration from family members, for example, who think that the progress isn't being made quickly enough, who don't understand quite what the individual is going through? Um, yeah, uh, fa- family relationships when there's hoarding involved is really, really complex. So um, in general, most of the people I work with don't have a lot of contact with their family because okay. relationships have been so strained um, over the years that they've got to a point now where they, they can't really communicate in a positive way anymore. Um, I... I think when people have got family involved and then there is a positive relationship, that's great. Everyone can work together and there isn't that frustration. They will understand that their parent or auntie or whoever it is needs time and then they're happy to work with professionals involved. Um, what can be really tricky is the trauma that they, the people have grown up with growing up in, the, in a home that was hoarded and the neglect that they experienced obviously that just affects their future relationships and they they need support in their own right. And Lisa, what about scenarios in which an individual's mental capacity um, is questioned? You know, are you aware of cases in which an individual who is self-neglecting uh, situations where they lack the capacity to understand the impacts of their behaviour? Um, yes, it's really tricky with hoarding and probably in Lizzie's area of work as well. Um, so the yeah the idea of like the executive capacity and the somebody may be able to tell you exactly you know what the risks are what their opinions are what actions they're going to take and then when it comes to the action that's divorced from the 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 understanding um but you will also 
what I find I don't necessarily see it as a capacity issue a lot of the time it's there's a lot of dissociation when it comes to hoarding so you can't it's very difficult to do a capacity assessment because the person will not engage in the conversation so uh, that's I find that quite challenging um and again it needs a kind of team approach to that but if you're trying to talk to the person about the risks um and about the actions and about their understanding about continuing to acquire items for instance or about refusing of the fire brigade to come and do a safety check they they can't talk to you about it they will change the subject immediately onto something else and that's not because they don't understand or they can't weigh it up it's because it's too painful for them to discuss it people can't um make decisions or it's unlikely that people will have the you know the full ability to make decisions when they're in a threat response a trauma response Mm. there's a exactly i don't know if you're aware lisa if you've read it there's a um case in the court of protection in relation to hoarding, the AC and GC case. Um, yeah, I had it ready in case, yeah, we were going to talk um, about it, yeah. But that's, you know, if people listening want to look that up, it shows some of the issues around um, assessing capacity because often I'd be asked, you know, oh, could you go out and assess this person's capacity about self-neglect? Now, under that... <laughs> that broad umbrella is a lot of different decisions and it's interesting in the AC and GC case how a court protection judge has separated out different decisions but I think also as sort of Lisa was saying a capacity assessment we have in our head as professionals that a capacity assessment is one conversation whereas actually if we're thinking about the principles of the mental capacity act so think about principle two taking all practicable steps to enable someone to make the decision themselves i think we probably jump too quickly from a decision needs to be made to is it an unwise decision or a lack of capacity without spending enough time on that taking all practicable steps which may well in situations of self-neglect and hoarding involve building a relationship so the person isn't dissociating as soon as you come through the front door. Um, so that's sort of one of the complexities. And yeah, executive capacity and the disconnect between what the person says and what the person does is a real issue because I think people can struggle with the fact that someone can be highly articulate and then also be functionally unable to do certain actual things when it requires, you know, using information in the real world as opposed to communicating decisional capacity in the moment. Mm. And there's different reasons, I think. And again, you might find this, Lizzie, um, people with ADHD make up a huge proportion of my clients Mm. and they can only describe it as like they know what they need to do but they cannot do it and they don't know why they can't do it they just can't um and that's really frustrating for them as well and to some of the people who are trying to work with them and support them they're like but you know we discussed this we did a smart goal you know we've done all these things and you still haven't done the thing you said you were going to do and they don't know why they can't do it and so you know that our you know kind of approach of like slow building relationships and doing things together that's how to overcome that you know most of the time Lizzie, uh, Lisa, thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to include a link in the show notes to that case um, so that listeners can look into that in more detail in their own time. 
But we're going to finish up with a really important section, and that's looking at the the duties that the CARE Act places on local authorities in relation to self-neglect. So that was a bit of a game changer, wasn't it, Lizzie, uh, when the CARE Act came in? So talk us through the duties that the CARE Act places in relation to self-neglect. So before the CARE Act came in, and when I have um, social work students and newly qualified social workers that I'm, um, you know, as a practice educator, they always seem a bit a bit shocked to find out about this. But before, um, so it's Care Act 2014, it was enacted in April 2015. And before the Care Act came in, there were no statutory duties around safeguarding adults. There was guidance, government circulars and, you know, best practice guidance, but there was, there was no statutory duties and self-neglect wasn't classed as an area of safeguarding adults. So typically when you'd be triaging, safeguarding referrals, you'd be thinking, who's the, and this is old-fashioned language, but it's what we used to say, who's the perpetrator and who's the victim? And self-neglect doesn't fit into that um, at all. So I think um, part of the reason that self-neglect features so prominently in Safeguarding Adults Reviews is because it is a relatively new area of safeguarding work. So in... Section 42 of the Care Act, it's the duty to make inquiries or cause inquiries to be made. And the statutory guidance to the Care Act says that self-neglect may not prompt a Section 42 inquiry. I think sometimes that's been interpreted as will not prompt a Section 42 inquiry. Um, But actually, sort of going back to what Lisa was saying about the importance of a multi-agency team when working with hoarding and self-neglect. I think sometimes when there's a high-risk situation and you need to get all the right people around the table because there's no one agency that's going to be able to resolve the issues, that Section 42 framework can be really helpful in terms of getting all the agencies around the table and sharing information. So that's one of the one of the statutory duties around self-neglect as a safeguarding issue. Are there others? So I think one of the things that um, is flagged up in safeguarding adults reviews is that sometimes in the sort of cases of self-neglect that I work with, I don't know if this sort of resonates with Lisa, but often with things around drug and alcohol use, homelessness, people with sort of complex trauma histories, but not necessarily a sort of diagnosis, recognised diagnosis of mental disorder. Um, The legal frameworks that you would apply as a statutory social worker with other people and other population groups don't get applied. So even though, you know, it's all social work skills, it's all stuff that social workers already have and are doing with other people. But for some reason, I think maybe it's because of feeling like you're worried that there's a lot of risk or you're not sure what to do or you're feeling stuck, all the legal frameworks that you'd usually use, like, you know, Section 9 of the Care Act, Care and Support Needs Assessment, or, you know, Mental Capacity Act, um, and even, you know, potentially Mental Health Act if somebody is acutely mentally distressed, um, that doesn't happen. And we kind of rely on, this is sort of, I suppose, bringing in this assumption of lifestyle choice again, that, you know, this is somebody's um, unwise decision and there's nothing we can do, which I challenge, I kind of challenge because it's not necessarily an unwise decision. And even if someone is making an unwise decision, there isn't nothing we can do. 
I can make an unwise decision to speed on the motorway, but the police can still pull me over, right? You don't have a, a right to do something unwise just because you have capacity to make that decision. So, but let's see if I could just come in there in terms of balancing then mm. the, those requirements of the CARE Act and other pieces of legislation with the requirements of the Human Rights Act. So I'm thinking of Article 8, the yes. right to respect for private and family life, yeah. the right to liberty, Article 5. You know, those are pretty yeah. serious and, and uh, you know, important pieces mm. of legislation as yeah. well. So how do you balance that? Well, this is I think this is one of the main issues that why um, self-neglect work is so complex and why, um, you know, there's, there's struggles kind of on a day-to-day basis to work with self-neglect because ethical dilemmas come up all the time and you're balancing this, you know, you're balancing the rights of the person with the rights of society or their neighbours indeed. Um, You're balancing the um, duty to protect with the right, the duty to promote autonomy. And these require supervision, reflection that we don't necessarily have time to do in the front line. So I think... I read a really good paper by Bray or and Preston Shute about ethical dilemmas in self-neglect work, looking at balancing autonomy and protection. And I think, unfortunately, you know, our work doesn't happen in a vacuum and certain people are more likely to be deemed to be making an unwise decision and certain people are more likely to be deemed to be lacking capacity. And neither of those is okay (laughs) because one's potentially oppression and one's potentially neglect. And I think it's important to bear in mind that we also have duties to protect as well as duties not to intervene unnecessarily. So we've got, you know, Article 2, Right to Life, comes with positive obligations to safeguard. Um, And I think it's important not to what Bray or Preston Shoot call prioritise an illusion of autonomy because... If somebody actually is unable to make that decision because of trauma, because they've not had everything explained properly, because they actually lack capacity to, you know, understand, retain, use, weigh, etc., that the information, you're not promoting autonomy by not intervening there. But it's it's very complex set of things to balance. Lizzie, Lisa, I think that seems like a good point for us to wrap up. There's there's some stuff we didn't get to cover, as is often the case. But thank you so much for giving your time. It's been a really helpful conversation, something I've really benefited from. I'm sure listeners will really benefit from too. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. It'll be great to have you back on sometime. It's been really good. Thank you very much. But yeah, it was great. Thank you.